cliffcentral.com. It is time for another, oh, hang on, I'm going to switch on my camera there. It's time for another burning platform on cliffcentral.com. Thursday mornings mean we get to deep dive into all the events of the week, try to consider some of the big stories that are in the news, talk a little bit about how they impact and affect all of our lives, and that is what we do here with uh, Pumi Mashiko and I every Thursday. And we're also pleased to welcome today someone who is well-known to the show and someone who we refer to often as being one of our uh, best commentators. He, he's not scared of a, an argument. He's also well-informed, makes sure that he knows what's going on. He is Mighty Jamie. You can find him on Twitter at M-I-G-H-T-I, Mighty Jamie, and that's one word, J-A-M-I-E. He's a researcher. He's an analyst. He's a commentator. Jamie, always nice to see you. How are you? I'm good. Uh, can you hear me just fine? Loud and clear. Perfect, as always. Hello. Good stuff. I was joking. Hello, hello, hello. I was joking with Pumi. Ja- Jamie, did you move into a palace? <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a Zoom background. It's a Zoom background. <laughs> he, he, he's uh, he's showing off. Easy. He's showing off Pumi. Yeah, so, you know, like you're allowed I, I'm, to. I'm wondering if he got some of those pala pala dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Cyril, Cyril's Palapala sofa money. So, uh, Jamie, I joked with Pumi that the last time you guys were on, you had an argument, which I, I mean, I love an argument, but it seems that South Africans mistake an argument for like aggression and, uh, and hatred and, a, mm. and, and, and enmity. And I, I think that you have, having been in debating for much of your life, probably have to explain yourself often to people, like I do, when you get, heated and passionate about an argument even if it's with a friend you have to explain to them because sometimes they mistake the passion and the and the interest and the enthusiasm for something negative right i don't hate you. yeah yeah actually and it was quite a quite an important discussion the gun culture versus um right you know gun legislation debate and got me thinking about our alcohol culture in South mm. Africa a um, few weeks um, after the event when there was that crisis in that um, in that uh, Eastern Cape uh, tavern. tavern. But uh, I think you're, you're right. And, and how I handle it most of the times is just to see if people can actually handle, um, you know, having a debate, a structured discussion. Because some people, as soon as you uh, put across a different point of view, they view it as Conflict. confrontational. They can't actually step outside um you know their predetermined beliefs and worldview so not all of of my friends can handle a debate and sometimes i'm selective and sometimes people don't have sufficient information for you to have um, a high quality discussion with them and you almost have to almost guide them towards some information that they need to have prior you know because some debates can get very technical uh i've seen on some podcasts as well uh, you know some of the more popular ones that are outside of, of your uh, platform where people have discussions about politics and you can tell that, uh, you know, this podcast host has not actually studied the fundamentals of politics. And that's why they are suggesting things which are like outside the realm of representative democracy or even yeah. direct democracy. Well, you know, I don't, so, you know, sometimes you can't have the chat. I don't mind that. What I hate is when people have the sanitized conversation where everybody's all friendly with each other and they, they say things like, let's ah. agree, let's agree to disagree, which is just the most nothing statement in the whole world. Yeah, there's a lot of um, <laughs> yeah, 
what is it? Is it is it political correctness? Or it's not political oh, yeah. correctness. No, it's politeness. It's almost like, like South Africans don't mean, South Africans yeah, don't actually yeah. like to disagree with each other because it's we've been raised to think that that's a bad thing, and and I think it's a big problem you know, long long term. But let's let's introduce our other guest because I don't want to spend too much time talking about the intricacies of a debate that we may still have. Uh, Nastasha Arantza, as I mentioned, <laughs> is a business news anchor at the SABC. She's been in broadcasting for a very long time and a, and a very, very interesting career. And it's a pleasure. I'm sorry it's taken us so long to get you on, Nastasha. But here you are. You're finally on the show with us. Nice to see you. Uh, no worries. Good morning to everyone. Great to be here. Yeah, nice to see you. So listen, guys, I do want to start off with something. And this is why it's great to have Nastasha on here. We haven't had a macro discussion about the economy for a long time. We bitch and complain like everybody in South Africa, and rightly so, about inflation the increase in interest rates, which happened just last week, uh, the fact that we're paying more for petrol, which is sometimes in our control, sometimes not. There's a certain amount of that that's government's fault. Uh, there's a certain amount of it that is just, you know, the, the reality of global markets. And I did want to talk a little bit about what South Africans are feeling um, when, when they feel this pinch and when they feel the pressure in their wallet, because it's this is the real problem that we face. I mean, we, we could talk endlessly about politics or about society or about any of those issues around social justice, which is such a big deal in places like America. But the reality for most South Africans is a tough economic one. And I'd just like to hear where all three of you, Pumi, Jamie, and Nastasha, where you guys are, are, are based on the people you speak to and your own life, where you're feeling the pinch the most and what you think the biggest drivers in people's decision-making going forward, whether it's political, social, or economic, are going to be as a result of those drivers and what those pressures are. Yeah, so I think if I, if I jump in just to um, Go ahead. get the conversation going, I think when you look at um, people within the 25 to 35 age group, not oftentimes these are people who are either single parents or the young couples and they're entering um, certain relationships with debt, uh, long-term debt specifically, and obligations which are fixed. And I'm talking here about if you have a child, mm. you have to pay for childcare, and then you have to pay for, for schooling. And one of the things that is, is creating a big um, issue is the cost of private education and the cost of um, housing, because that's where a lot of people are getting hit hard. And then they also have to get the financial com commitment of actually getting a car. And oftentimes those cars are financed. So when the interest rate goes up and you have a bond and you've got a car, uh, car payments to make, that's when um, you know you, things can start squeezing. So the, the big cost for many people who have to take children to school, et cetera, is that fuel cost? It's really changing, uh, you know, a lot of, of of their cost calculus. But in terms of doing um, a more uh, macro analysis, as long as um, private education continues to be, you know, uh, so expensive, and obviously when you have um, the the education dynamics being as they are, it is going to be expensive. You know, uh, supply and demand, and all mm -hmm. of those dynamics which affect pricing are going to play out. But if you think about how much of uh, the, the the regular South Africans' monthly expenditure goes to the car payment, the bond, and then school fees, and uh, you know some yeah. people are paying eleven thousand, twelve thousand a month just for um, then you, you don't have any breathing room. 
I want to throw one other thing in there, Jamie, because you're spot on. And we just spoke to, to the headmaster of a, of a private education institution. And obviously they, you know, the level of what's going on there and what goes on at the, uh, you know, the township school or even worse, the rural school far away from everything else where there are huge under resourced, uh, massively uh, financially challenged and, uh, in terms of staff, uh, way behind. The, the the differences are absolutely enormous, and we've got to look at that. But I think one other thing to throw in here is that a lot of people, and you mentioned the word debt earlier, um, there are mashonisas all over this country who are giving people loans, and they are charging them interest, which is, I mean, the word exorbitant doesn't even begin to describe it. Sometimes people are paying back 50 to 60% on these loans because they can't get them from anywhere else. They can't get them from financial institutions because they're not banked. Uh, they don't have a credit record. So they go to a mashonisa who will give them cash that they desperately need either to put, you know, uh, someone in hospital who needs treatment, to pay school fees, to buy food. We're talking about very basic things. And then they get completely shellacked by the interest rates from these mashonisas. I think that's a big problem in this country that nobody talks about. It is, and it's also partly because of that predatory lending uh, mm-hmm. ecosystem that we've created where they can even debit. Uh, so now a lot of these uh, micro-lenders are debiting directly and people can't get access to um, you know, mainstream finance, if you will. So they end up going to, you know, because they were blacklisted or their credit rating. We, mm-hmm. we, we do need to think a lot about what kind of support is given to uh, young professionals, um, young parents, uh, to to cushion them from some of the stuff because the stuff that pushes them there is that oftentimes people feel like they don't have an option because you want your child to have a better life than you. So you're going to fight to send them to uh, a quality school, get them the solid foundations. And sometimes because of the bad quality of the schools, you you make a sacrifice and then it puts you in this financial I just want to throw in this statistic too. Apparently private education, if you take it per capita, is cheaper than what the government pays per child. Current budget for child in a government school is 25,000 rand a year. That's in terms of the budget allocated per child in South Mm -hmm. Africa's public schools, government schools. Low-level private schools will offer a year of education for 20,000 rand. So we've also got to look at that and say how much wastage is going on in the Department of Basic Education. But let me bring Nastasha in here because uh, otherwise it's the Jamie and Gareth show. Um, what, what, do you think of, <laughs> what do you think of the major things affecting people in terms of, of, of what they have to pay for, what they have to think about finances, personal finances, the economy at large? You look at this stuff every day in business news. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I'll just building on that, I just want to add just a layer slightly below what Jamie just highlighted there. I mean, you spoke a lot about what's going on from a private sector education point of view. But I would, you know, add to that and say, you know, it's the ordinary man on the street who's feeling the pinch. I mean, if you look at where a consumer spending was and consumer sentiment was probably pre-pandemic, it wasn't particularly great. And then we get into COVID, we get into the lockdowns, especially that hard initial lockdown that we saw probably in the first few months of 2020. Mm-hmm. That is still having an impact even post uh, lockdown when we're trying to imagine what a post pandemic recovery looks like. Because I'm, I'm sure you've heard yep. all types of economists trying to see what that means for South Africa, never mind the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And then you go into these situations where 
we're dealing with you know supply chain disruptions and we're dealing with the russia ukraine tensions and a whole host of other stuff building in and then suddenly inflation is now a problem so we're now dealing with a consumer that was not particularly in a great shape pre uh pandemic and then the pandemic just made it worse and then post pandemic we're telling people well you need to tighten your belts because given what's going on globally you have the IMF saying the outlook for the next say year or two and I and I will use the exact words they said it's gloomy and uncertain Oof. and that's scary because you thinking okay so reserve banks been hiking interest rates for mm-hmm. quite some time in order for them to stay ahead and deal with inflation dynamics that are starting starting to run a sort of boil under mm-hmm. and you wonder what is happening on the ground on the street what the man on the street is able to pay for on a daily and you're starting to see that also with um i think with transaction activity i think bank serve does a really great um you know survey in terms of looking at transactions at pay points at ATMs etc right. so they get to uh, have a nice indication of what's going on from a salary point of view and how salaries have started to moderate but inflation is moving a lot faster than salaries are able to keep up with and then you have this other fear coming in there where economists are saying well, we're likely to see more strikes because at the end of the day you you seeing a brand not stretch far enough as it used to. Yeah. And on the other hand you're probably picking up all kinds of costs um internally in your household because you're probably having to supplement the um contributions of those who lost their jobs in that covid period. So there's a whole host of stuff that is happening underneath on the ground that we get to see and get economists bringing through the numbers but you also starting to see it especially when a lot of the companies start to report their results i think we're going into yeah. local company earnings there's only so much some of the companies can do and i think um it's quite good that a lot of the major jsc food retailers are absorbing a lot of that cost pressures on behalf of the consumer And I think that's some of the things that we've got going for us for now. Well, I'm glad that you brought up this COVID thing because I said to Pumi in the first hour of this morning's show, we're still counting the cost of all those stupid, stupid lockdowns and obviously made no difference in terms of lives saved. We now have that data from the CDC, who were the people most behind lockdowns in the U.S., and we can now see the economic devastation that those decisions have wrought. And I do hope politicians end up paying a price for their bad decision-making because if we have another if we have another health scare, another global pandemic, and people – behave like they did in this one um i think people are going to have less patience with governments than they did this this previous time for me another global pandemic is not going to be the problem that we have to <laughs> to worry about to deal with but i think you know what what covid has done is it's distracted us from looking at what the real numbers look like before covid mm-hmm. south africa's economy has been spluttering way before covid and any of the covid lockdowns yes. what they did was it exacerbated it and we are currently sitting in a situation i was watching last night um i'm sure you'd have seen with Nancy Pelosi and wanting to go to Taiwan oh, yeah. right and the chinese and and the chinese <laughs> threatening to shoot down her plane if she does <laughs> what <laughs> what and and I, what the hell Nancy Pelosi wants to go to Taiwan you know the last time that um and 
uh, an American at that level went to Taiwan to Gingrich. It's like a very long time ago. But wow. I, I want to talk to you guys about the numbers of monthly income in South Africa in 2020. There is at UCT they have a, a um, an Institute of Strategic Marketing, and they release. And, and it's important for marketers to understand household incomes because that's who you market to and how you market your products, right? And they released their statistic. They, they do this over a period of time. And their 2017 to 2020 comparison shows a very sharp decline of what was then, you know, middle class and upper middle class and the top end earners. Right. And the decline is so sharp as that the top end earners, and this is, you know, adults who earn uh, over 70,000 rands a month. That's what a top earner is in this country. The decline is it halved between 2017 and 2020. It halved the number of people in that income bracket halved. And, and what you also see on the, on the bottom end of the scale is you see what the ultra poor and they, they, they're categorized as ultra poor. So people who earn less than 3,500 rand a month, survivors, people who earn between 3,500 and 8,000 rand a month and skilled strugglers. So these are people with a degree, with a skill of some sort, but they earn between 8,000 and 22,000 rand a month. All of those three categories have swelled. You know, they they have gone up in the ultra poor. Seven million adults were added to that range. You know, it used to be nine million adults before it's now sixteen million adults. In the in, in in the skilled strugglers, which which kind of Jamie, you were talking to new income earners, young people starting in their new jobs. That's where they fall into that category. Mm. That has decreased become less by 2 million people. This is what South Africa looked like in 2020. This is what it looked like in 2020. And where we are today, you know, on Monday, uh, Stats SA released their liquidations uh, statistics uh, documents. So liquidations over the, the past year. And even those numbers are staggering. The number of people who have become liquidated, the number of businesses that have been liquidated in the past year, and unfortunately, we have a policy here. And that's, 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 I practiced how to say your name. Nastasha. And now that I'm speaking, because so, I looked Nastasha. at it and it was so funny. And I was like, I've never seen this spelling. So I did practice how to say your name. That's uh, But And I think you can talk a little bit more about this. Is What we see in South Africa is we see a monetary policy or an economic policy that is very much targeted at inflation targeting. That's why you see the NPC comes out and then they say we're going to 75 basis points. We're increasing (laughs) the repo rate. And they are forecasting that there are going to be two more repo rate increases this year. It doesn't work. It's an old system that is not working for South Africans. South Africans are saying there is no more money. My pockets are already perforated. I can't pay any more. I can't pay any more yeah. for, for petrol. I can't pay any more for inflation. I can't, I can't pay any more. And yet they are not coming up with innovative and clever ways of dealing with our economic policy so that it serves the people. Um, so I think, you know, when you listen to Lise Chakanyako, you know, try to explain the reason why, uh, you know, NPC is generally the quickest way to deal with inflation. 
And I think the simplest way in which I can explain it, I think um, in the 80s, if we take it back to the US, there's this uh, term they like to throw around, or uh, they call it the Volcker Rule. And this was this uh, Volker, kind of yeah. goes back to, yeah, it's Paul Volcker. And at the time, you know, there's this famous saying that they sort of quote in a lot of media where he says uh, central, bank is, central banking is the only game in town in order to deal with inflation, especially when you're seeing it so rampant. And the reason we sort of go that route is because all the other sort of innovative ways that you could think of, say, you know, um, increasing taxes in order to cool down spending or, you know, in supporting different other industries in order to deal with productivity, economic productivity, take quite some time for those policies to get pushed right through. I mean, if you even take our local uh, national government, for instance, just trying to get a policy and a bill passed through and it's signed and you all agree and we've got equal contribution, it's going to take quite some time. So that is why oftentimes, you know, central banks will try and use a contractionary way of uh, cooling down the economy in order to bring inflation under control in that way. Um, you know, we're not all, you're kind of reducing um, your ability to spend and not in the way to your detriment, but it's to sort of protect you for lack of a better description. And we've heard these arguments where people have been saying, well, you know, why are we increasing interest rates? And I think in South Africa, um, some economists have tried to compare the Reserve Bank with some of the other central banks in emerging countries. And the other is that even when we talk about these innovative ways that we can do, that we can also call it, you know, enforce to deal with inflation, there isn't a lot of analysis and evidence that say that if we deal with it differently, it works. I mean, some will bring up Pakistan, I just think recently, which just completely went off the hinges. The president and the prime minister yeah. had to resign. It was a complete mess. Um, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson also had to resign because, well, you failed to manage the cost of living for a lot of the, you know, people who live in the UK. Uh, Prime Minister Mario Draghi is dealing with the exact same issue where the economy is not going in the way that you want it to. And to Lesetra's credit, I mean, he's done quite a bit to try and, you know, explain why monetary policy goes in the way that it does. And what has actually been great, and we've got to give kudos to some of our the, uh, you know, economists, especially within the Reserve Bank. Last year, we were talking about U.S. inflation, and we all know when the U.S. sneezes, everybody catches a cold. Yeah. It's just the way the dynamics are. And the U.S. misread inflation for the longest time since March last year, which is unbelievable. And everybody kept saying inflation is hot. You've got to do something. You've got to increase rates. And at least our Reserve Bank had the foresight to say we're going to hike in November. We're going to hike before the, the, the um, Americans do. Because by the time they catch on, that the inflation is high. A lot of the sort of risky money is going to move away from South Africa to the U.S. in any case. Yeah. So let's just try and be ahead of the curve. And we've Nastasia. done it probably, yeah? Nastasia. I, I would like I to also jump that, in after. Okay. I, I, I don't think that uh, what we're saying 
is that it is not the quickest way. What I am saying is that for a very long time, South Africa has been on this trajectory. So that very, and we do have the highest tax regime in the world, right? And for a very long time, that's why I bring the numbers of 2020. Mm. This has been the indicator. And what our government has failed to do for a good, since probably since about 2011, what our government has failed to do is read the signs and respond accordingly. The, the very far extreme, which we nobody, nobody saw coming, and analysts are always, one of my favorite quotes is how analysts are, oh, get it wrong 50% of the time, and the other 50% <laughs> of the time it surprises them. Right? Is, we, we did not see Ukraine coming. But what, what was all the indicators that we saw in the past two, three years, and now that's why I bring up the issue of Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan, is, is some kind of struggle between China and America. At the worst case scenario, it being a all-out war. Our government has failed to look at all of those signs and say, how do we make the cost of living for South Africans a more workable situation and where we are today is that they need short-term solutions for a problem that has been building for a very long time that's all i'm saying yeah no i no, i agree with you i'll say i agree with you but on the cost of living thing is it not then a policy issue for the longest time we that's what i said no, so I, you know, I think in me defending the Reserve Bank's, you know, stance when it comes to increasing rates, that was just me just, you know, laying it out in terms of why policy has gone that way from a monetary policy perspective. From a other policy perspective, when we're dealing with how do we deal with education, with, uh, you know, job growth, etc., that has just been, you know, what we've seen is policymakers almost pulling in different directions. They all running with their own different mandates and nobody's coming together to actually say how are we actually going to fix the economy to create jobs and the cost of living then suddenly increases. So that <clears throat> is sitting with the guys who are running the different departments, economic development, uh, labor, etc. I mean, they sing the same tune about we're going to remove red tape and we're going to do this and <laughs> we're going to do that. And I've done enough conferences, interviewed enough people. Everyone's like, oh, we're going to do this. But I don't understand how is it possible we're still singing about red tape five years later. Yeah. The NDP, like, does anybody even talk about what the national development plan even looks like? They rehash no. it every time we get into sort of elections or whatever the case is. I can't see what we've achieved, you know, that's substantial from the national development point of view view, especially when it comes to the NDP plan. And also, no one's ever come back and said, well, look, there's the NDP. This is what we think we've achieved. And we've now taken COVID into consideration. And this is how back we are. Or this is what this is how we've been set back as a result of COVID and yep. mismanagement within so, SOEs so on that and note, our policies that are, yeah. On that note, 2 million jobs, they reckon, were lost because of lockdowns. Lockdowns, not because of COVID. Let's call it what it is. So I hate to bang on the same drum, but if you don't want the cost of living to go up, don't do things like lockdowns, Right. You can Jamie wanted thing. to say something. Yeah, yeah Jamie. Jamie wanted yeah, to add sure. something. 
Yeah, so what I wanted to say is that focusing on the monetary uh, policy discussion, that number one, we shouldn't necessarily just agree with Reserve Bank governors simply because they say stuff off often. And a lot of times the South African um, monetary policy is just cut and paste from what the Americans are doing and what the Europeans are doing. So if they say, hey, we're raising interest rates, South Africa will say, yeah, we're raising them too. And that's what's happened this year without thinking about some of the contextual dynamics. Sure. The South African monetary policy has always been, we're going to try to stay within the three to 6% window for inflation. But you don't necessarily need to stay within that window, which has been the argument, right? And we can see now that a country can operate with a higher window. I mean, I think the UK is at 11% right now. America is over 9%. So the reason why people have argued for expansionary monetary policy is to make sure that the economy is stimulated in the right way. Right? Businesses which need to lend uh, to, to hire people to produce products at a cost that's competitive so that they can export them. And now we're talking about households that are overexposed and are struggling to meet the cost of living. So in fact, even though Boris Johnson is a, is, is a controversial figure. He didn't lose his job because of monetary policy. You know, mm -hmm. He lost it because uh, too many scandals had caught up with him. And part of the debate that's happening now in London and in the UK is that, hey, actually, the, the monetary policy that we've adopted is not helping us deal with our current cost of living challenges and the challenges that are being faced now. So it's important for us to understand that even if the inflation target was six to nine percent, for example, which is not radical, it's progressive, you then can actually protect um, everyday South Africans from some of the decisions that they now have to make. What has been done is that, unfortunately, the people who sit in um, the think tanks that drive economics, the, the, the institutions that uh, drive monetary policy are often elites who have a lot of money and they want to preserve the, the wealth that they already have. So they don't want any policy that can depreciate um, their assets to any extent, even if mm. that particular depreciation does stimulate the economy and maybe make the money somewhere else. So to protect the wealth that they already have, they often will say, don't pursue anything that will add to inflation. Because the guy who's sitting on a billion, he doesn't want um, you to depreciate his, his assets by even 2%, uh, even if, because for him, 2% of a lot will make a big difference. But for everyone else who's either... Um, poor, struggling, uh, struggling middle class, or even just uh, at the bottom of the wealth uh, totem pole, some of these monetary policies are preventing them from being able to build the businesses that they need to build to grow their businesses in the right way. Now, the question then becomes, if the federal, not the Federal Reserve, just the Reserve Bank won't do it, then you can move to the other questions of policy to say, what is Treasury going to do? What is going to be done to actually allow the growth creating um, part of the economy to function. And that's when you can talk about company tax. That's when you can talk about these other things. And this is what Rishi Sunak as well is being butchered for right now because people are saying, hey, you actually don't have a plan to actually stimulate this economy in the short to medium term. Right. And because you are a very fabulously wealthy man, all you can say to us is, I'm going to raise taxes and I'm not going to touch anything to do with monetary policy. It's a very important debate. And in fact, just out of uh, just to inform the viewer, I guess, is one of the debates which is still raging in the ANC, 
because at their last conference, they resolved that, uh, you know, the monetary policy of the Reserve Bank should change. And then, uh, you know, uh, President Ramaphosa came in and he's not pursued that. So it's going to be interesting as they go into this um, policy discussion uh, section of, their, of, of 2022, whether that will come back up and people say, hey, What's actually going to happen with the Reserve Bank? If you remember, Busisiwa Mkwebane, the public protector, she got herself involved in this whole debate by using her office to also make recommendations about what the monetary policy should be. And obviously, that's the wrong office to be making those kind of decisions. It's not in her purview. But this is one of the debates that we need to all familiarize ourselves to say, hey, we already know the UK can function at 11%. America can function at 9%. Why is a developing economy that needs to stimulate growth in manufacturing to create jobs that needs to protect families and households from uh, overexposure to debt? Why are we pursuing this very aggressive so, inflation targeting of 3 you, you, you brought it up. Just to come in there... Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry to interrupt, uh, Gareth. Um, The idea that America can function at 9% is not true, especially if you look at some of the consumer figures coming through and spending patterns. And especially when you're looking at some of the um, big retailers, we're talking Walmart here. And if you look at the kind of consumer that Walmart is catering to, Walmart is already saying that we're issuing a profit warning. We are worried about the consumer at the bottom, never mind the person who is on a mid-tier of higher spending, who's you know who's spending on flight tickets, etc. We're worried about the guy at the bottom. Never mind the guy who's just complaining about gasoline prices, who's more right. mid-tier. So that is a false thing to say that America is functioning on 9.1. It's a big concern for the Fed, and the Fed would not be aggressively pushing interest rates to be as high if they believe that the American consumer can survive on 9.1 versus the Fed's target of 2%. And I want to come back to the idea about the Reserve Bank. We constantly harp on the Reserve Bank, and I don't understand why we're not talking broadly about macroeconomic mismanagement that has happened in the South African economy for years. Because it's it's both of those things. It's it's both of those things. You can't say the Reserve Bank is exempt. No, no, no. I did say you Uh can discuss Treasury, but when you talk about monetary policy, you're talking about monetary policy. Department. Exactly. But you when you're talking about monetary all policy, these other departments that have failed us. Guys, we, we can't we can't we were just talking about education before. We can't say yes, when we're talking about monetary policy. The others. There are others as yeah, well. but but right now we're talking about monetary policy and that's uh, a function of the reserve bank. You know, if yes. we're talking about the Ministry of Education, Angie Musheka can't come and say, Ah oh, guys, why are you not talking about the Treasury? Why are you not talking about corrupt corruption in, in transport? We are talking right now about monetary policy. And when I say function, I'm not saying that uh, things are not tough for Americans. What I'm saying is that at the macroeconomic level, the argument that a country cannot uh, sustain itself with higher burdens of inflation is not necessarily true. I'm not talking about hyperinflation. I'm talking about expanding the bracket. And remember, I said moving it from three to six to something from six to eight. Right. So if you look at the American case study, why are Americans struggling to make ends meet right now is because the cost of gas has shot through the roof throughout this year. And the other thing is that the Federal Reserve, the American Federal Reserve for the last 20 years has pursued a policy of quantitative easing where they have been flushing money into the economy. And we saw what happened when the pandemic broke out. They gave people a bunch of bundles of money 
through, throughout the pandemic. That's what has created this level of inflation, not necessarily the fact that the inflation targeting. So you see the Federal Reserve of America is speaking both ways because they pursued the policy of quantitative easing. And then now they're coming to say, hey, we're just going to solve all of this by uh, right. drastically comrades, easing Comrades, comrades, order, order. I didn't say here. All right. I, I, yeah, I, I didn't I have say to, here that we I have need to just... No, but I'm being ordered. <clears throat> I'm just saying that we, I'm not saying in my criticism of the monetary policy that we need both to have quantitative easing and to have uh, I just uh, wanna, expansive inflation targeting. I want to throw this in. Narrow inflation I mean, targeting so, so, is killing businesses. So the Reserve Bank and, and governments in general only have a few very blunt tools with which to manage the economy. And frankly, uh, having judged by the way that they've managed so much of, of public enterprises and, and the like, I would like them to have as little control as possible. Um, and, and I say that advisedly because I know I'm going to get a little bit of opprobrium from all of you on this. And, you know, there's a, there's a good argument to be made for government having less or more control in an economy. But the Reserve Bank can only play with interest rates. It's the only tool they have. And it's not the best way to guarantee an outcome. That's the, that's the honest to God truth. The other thing about this is that we can't talk about these things for too long because people, as much as it, it affects them way more than the politics, they get bored. And when you start talking about quantitative <laughs> easing, unless that's actual money in their, in their pockets, which it was for Americans, they don't really understand terms like this. I don't even – I have to think about it when I hear these things. And I'm, But we I'm, have to make these things accessible, Gareth, because it's, it's affecting you know, I people. Know. People have car but, payments, they've got but bonds, this is, I they've mean, got obligations. Jamie, isn't this a real indictment of Thomas Piketty and his bullshit about quantitative easing? Because if you ever needed, <laughs> if you ever needed proof that an economic theory was bullshit, just put it into practice. And I think that's what we've got here. Joe Biden's government <laughs> and America have tried that stuff. It has failed dismally. It's ruined the American economy. It's going to take them 10 years to get out of this hole. So, yeah, well, you know, you know even I'm, though I'm, we know that, even though we know that Boris Johnson's uh, exit, as it were, was, <laughs> was a, a, a number of different things that snowballed into a shitstorm for him, mm. right? But again, the thing about inflation and cost of living, all of those things, become, become the straw that breaks any donkey's back, right? So, and where they are today in the UK, and this is just an interesting bit of information. Yesterday, for the first time in 14 years, McDonald's had to increase their prices, their prices of the cheeseburger in the UK, past their psychological, unlike here in South Africa, we, you know, it's in the 20s or whatever, but almost all over the world, they have the psychological number of either one euro or $1 kind of meals. And yesterday they've increased the, the price of their cheeseburger past that one, one um, euro to 119 or 120 or something like that. And that, my dear, is, you know, after all the terms, after all of the quantitative easing, and that's what it actually comes down to. People are just like, this is rubbish in my life. If I have to pay more yeah. for petrol, if I have to pay more for my burger, if I have to pay more for this, then this government is shit and this government has got to go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what it boils down to for most people. It's like, what does this thing cost? And I love the way they always do this with politicians, and you guys must love this. I mean, Nastasha, you've probably done it before a couple of times. You get a politician in the studio, you get them on camera, and you say to them, what does bread actually cost? And they don't know 
Because in our country especially, the politicians don't deal with day-to-day costs. They don't know how much a tank of petrol costs. They don't pay for their petrol. They've got a blue light brigade of like six or seven cars with um, – with you know heavy, massive uh, guzz- gas guzzling cars, they don't know what it costs to fill them up. They're not even there when they fill the car up. Uh, they don't know what bread costs. They don't know, you know what, what it is to go shopping. To ask. Mm. A good question to ask would be to ask the Reserve Bank governor as well. How yeah. much is the monthly repayment on a car, and how much is a small business loan repayment? Because oftentimes, when these interest rates. Um, decisions are being made, yeah. they don't think, what did this restaurant need um, uh, in order to make monthly payments and to pay its employees and to be able to meet its obligations? A lot of businesses have shut down simply because they can't keep doing the business. So you know that study that you were talking about, it would be interesting if we did a small business study yeah. to say, you know, um, over the last four years, why have small businesses been closing and how are they helped or not helped? Because, you know, when we talk about these interest rate conversations, sometimes we're not thinking about where are we actually. Um, it's it's about households. It's about, you know, people who have these debt obligations. But it's also about small businesses. It's also about if you say, hey, we want that macro conversation we started with. We want to have more manufacturing in South Africa to have more manufacturing. You need to have people being able to build the factories, to be able to hire their employees and then to be able to sell the product at market for cheap. But if they don't get the support that they need from their environment, which is partly the Treasury, partly the small business ministry, but also the Federal Reserve, and they do have limited tools, but one of those tools is the interest rate. So if you then ask the guy who's making sneakers or maybe starting a small alcohol brand, Cuff Brewership, or even has a new wine yard, that how did this actually affect you? And if they tell you, I'm having to fire people. I'm having to, uh, you know, raise the cost of my product yeah. to try to make, uh, you, to break even. If that's what's happening, those businesses can't grow and you're not going to get the industrialists that you want. You know, like last week, there was this industrialist conference. President Cyril Ramaphosa was trying to say, we need all of these industrialists to come from South Africa. We want to have Elon Musk, et cetera, et cetera. But you don't get industrialists without the right level of support for them. Correct. And Elon Musk himself is a big industrialist because he got a lot of benefits from the American government. They saved and bailed out his companies at critical moments, Tesla and SpaceX. So then we got to ask ourselves, we want to see these outcomes in society. We want to see these companies doing well. What is the relationship between treasury, monetary policy, uh, the, the business ministries and the outcomes we want to see? How do we? That's the macro discussion, because if we're saying we want to see growth in South Africa, we have to have serious questions about where does that growth come from and how do you facilitate the growth? Growth doesn't just fall out of the sky. You know, it's not money from heaven. It's something that has to be created through good processes with a good philosophy both in terms of funding, in terms of monetary policy, but in terms of the enabling environment, which includes some of the deregulation, which hasn't yet happened. Well, that's that red tape that Nastasha was talking about. Yeah, and, and, you know, as Jamie mentioned, going into this policy conference, they have it almost all the time. And it would be interesting to see the kind of conversations they're having, not just with each other, but with others who bring in the the capacity and the capability, the implementers from even outside, you know, politics in terms of how do we create that enabling environment that Jamie is talking about from an economic development point of view, from a small business, from labor, from education, etc. 
you're going to have a conference where majority of the ministers who all fall within the ANC will be in there. So the question is, what are they picking up from the ground and what's not working? Because there's a lot that's probably not working and they are not aware of it. But moving forward, I mean, it's great to talk, you know, Reserve Bank, Treasury, but that's just too... Too, too tiny, yeah, right. What about the other institutions that play a role in helping this economy function and correcting the mistakes? Because I think a lot of times as South Africans, especially from a presidential point of view, etc., we talk a lot of game. We talk a lot of nice things that investors want to hear, yeah. but implementation is the problem. Accountability is the problem yeah. when things fail. Spot on. Absolutely. And also we think we want to hoard the, the, the power and say, no, we want to control how things work. But the country, we all sort of share whether it goes great or bad. And I would argue that sometimes we just don't bring in enough people to contribute intellectually and to also hold each other accountable. That's the one massive thing that I would say is missing from all the departments. And that's probably why we're not getting to the kind of growth Jamie would like to see what small businesses or whatever other aspects that are concerning. All right. So, yeah, you know, I think there are two other things that are just as concerning. Okay, Gareth, before you move on to the next thing, the, the thing for me, and I can't believe how quickly time has flown, is we first spoke about this going into NASRAC. But I want to remind everybody that listens is when you talk, Nastasia, about the people that are having this conversation going into the policy conference this weekend, looking at all of the the provincial conferences that the ANC is having. Guys, those are the people having this conversation on all our behalf. So if you sit here, Garrett, you say, as people get, people's eyes glaze over as yeah. they hear these terms like quantitative easing. This is also the, the person, the man on the street who is in that voting booth with the, in the conference. Those are the, those are the people who the ANC brings into this policy conference to have these conversations because the high quality people who should be having these conversations, who do have this information, who are the who are the experts, excuse me, who are the experts, the academics, the economists, all of those individuals would much rather spend their weekends sipping uh, cognac with their friends than being part of conversations such as this, which is why it's okay. very important that then we let's challenge have the these ANC conversations to say, too. you know what, at your next conference in Open it. Hold on. Invite it to everybody so that we all on. participate. Hold on, because Let's see what we come up. Don't say, don't, don't say the words challenge the ANC. They've got enough challenges <laughs> at the moment. They're falling. No, we must challenge ourselves. Yeah, they, and they, they're falling apart. Now, I know where Pumi's going on this, and I think it's a valid point, but a lot of this has to do with like just incompetent decision makers. And if we, you know, we, we tend to lionize and to demonize whoever we like or we don't like in politics. And, and you know, if it's Lesetcha Kanyaho and people love him, then he's the hero and he's the guy we've got to listen to. And if it's um, Trevor Manuel, people go, oh, he's fantastic. And then, you know, Des Van Royen comes in and it's all disastrous. So we, we tend to base this around people too often instead of good policy. And I'm waiting to hear some good policy because it's not coming from the ANC at the moment. On that note, so guys, let's just, let's just because we need to refer and reflect on some of the, the political stuff, we've got like seven minutes left of the show. Um, the KZN 
conference was a, a, an unmitigated disaster for some and a great win for others. We see the RET faction, as they're calling themselves now, or the, what do they call themselves, the Taliban, um, starting to, to play more of a role. Um, what do you foresee happening here? Jamie, you've been watching this carefully. What's going on here? Is this the ANC's last desperate attempt to assert their kind of Zuma-era uh, populism, or, or are we seeing something much more insidious going on? Well, I'll, I'll try to be quick. I think the first thing that we're seeing is that the divisions within the ANC are here to stay, and that's going to affect them going into 2024 because uh, when you're squabbling amongst yourselves, hmm. those squabbles also are, are consumed by the public. And if other political formations can maintain a unified front and just say, what's well, well, better than these squabbling guys, um, that's, that's, that's going to work in their favor. So I think you know, they may end up even below the 45% that some of the polls are, pro- are projecting for them. I think um, in terms of what does this mean for December, it's still very much up in up, up in the sky because, you know, even if you look at uh, the Gauteng uh, developments, you had Banyaza coming in, who is more sympathetic to Cyril, but the rest of the PEC was, uh, you know, um, what is it called? Adiwele. So, those kind of, 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 of dynamics mean that uh, Mr. Ramaphosa doesn't have a solidified grasp of key uh, provinces. Because if you think about Gauteng, you think about Wazulu Natal, those are key provinces. He definitely doesn't have Wazulu Natal. So there's going to be some turbulence in the months leading up to this. And you may actually, even if he re- remains in power, have people around him who are going to make it very difficult for him to deliver any mandate that he, he wants to deliver if he wins again. Yeah, um, it's it's interesting to see also which people are glomming on to, to who and where and why, because I do think there are a lot of people who are just seeing, like the taps are turning off. Uh, there's, there's less and less uh, available money to steal, and some people are getting desperate. You could see that they, they're like trying to clear house before it's over. Right, you, you you get a, a definite. Yeah, but there's also like a lot of looting still happening, mm, right? Plenty. It's not like the the looting stopped. I mean, no, no, no. some of it. Some of, one could say that during COVID, it was the peak period of looting because, you know, there were on all factions so I many heard, scandals. I heard a story. Uh, digital vibes just being one of them. I heard a story uh, just the other day about um, someone who's owed money by a government department, and the sheriff went and attached their like lunch tables and. Uh, and, and, you know, um, garden chairs and things in an attempt to try and recover the money that they are owed. And, and I think this is happening in a lot of government departments, especially at the municipal and local level in places that we don't even think about on this show. Uh, places where, you know, Leto and Tsoba tells us about where, um, in Velkom, where nothing functions anymore and they've pretty much shut down the municipality. There's nothing going on there. No one goes in. It's locked up their chains around the door. That's happening a lot. Yeah. Yeah, you know what happens? That's that's ironic. The companies that are doing tender deals, they get paid within three days. And the companies that actually have uh, quality bids that were given for uh, real delivery, they don't get paid for months on end. Mm. And so you end up having the money coming out of the municipality going into the looters' pockets and not going to the delivery. Like if you look at that Inokumkijima Stadium, for example. Two or three days before the payment went through. Yeah. Compared to the The, guys who've been actually doing the work. Yeah. The fumigation ones were all registered just after 
um, the schools got shut down. And there's no way that those people had the qualifications to fumigate schools. The bank accounts were all newly opened. The companies were all newly established. They got paid. Remember that 431 million that was covered mm-hmm. by Daily Maverick and a few others, those companies got paid within record time, but everyone else didn't get paid. Uh, who's doing regular work, uh, school, pro- school feeding programs, those kind of things. That's a real issue that we have. And I don't think that it's going to be resolved by one faction or the other, or that, you know, people are seeing taps run dry. People are just realigning where are the taps open. Yeah. Um, one last word. And Nastasha, I feel like we haven't given you and Pumi as much time as, as uh, Jamie and I have had this morning, but you go ahead. What do you want to finish off with? Uh, I would say, you know, let's not, you know, lose the, the discussion around uh, the debate around macroeconomic mismanagement and try to disguise it as some kind of revolutionary policy. We will risk plunging ourselves into irreparable damage which as a result will lead to more policy implement, poor policy implementation, which then is low growth and a disaster for South Africa. That's all I would say. Hmm. All right, strong words. Pums, anything from you to wrap it up? Economies are burning all over the world. I'm so sad we didn't get to talk about the mortgage boycotts happening in China. But the reality on the ground is that the economies all over the world are in meltdown. And South Africans are feeling the pinch far more than a lot of others because we've just had short-sightedness in our policies leading up until now. And it's going to be fascinating to see how that that kind of, um, how that informs going into the election cycle what the opposition parties are saying because obviously the ANC has nothing better to tell us that could have done past 27 years that they haven't. That's, yeah, that's my thing. That's my thing. That's why I get out today. I have to go, guys. Oh, Gareth is frozen. I don't know what, well, what that means. I don't know, I don't know oh. what happened there. Something frozen. <laughs> yeah, and it, it but it, but it, it happened uh, just a minute ago as well. So I think it's time that the, the, the bell is ringing. It's 8 o'clock. So guys, thank you very, very much. Jamie, always good to thank see you. you. Thank you so much, Nastasha. We'll have you back, I'm sure, soon. We'll see you next week, uh, same time, same place. Let me just quickly tell you, in case you are looking for something interesting to listen to this morning, Keanu Reeves, Tom Cruise, Steven Spielberg, and Richard Branson, what do they have in common? Well, they have success, fame, and dyslexia. That's right. Learning disorders affect many people with a specific problem, often undiagnosed, and the person misunderstood and potentially marginalized. You can find out more on this week's episode of Beyond Madness, which is brought to you in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, the sponsors of Brave. And you can always check out the previous episodes. They're fantastic of Beyond Madness. Some amazing, amazing interviews, some amazing insights. And if you care about mental health, you're interested in all of these subjects, you will have hit an absolute jackpot when you find Beyond Madness. We will see you tomorrow at 6 a.m. bright and early. Thank you to all the guests. Thank you especially to you for listening this morning. Let us know who you'd like to hear on the show. Let us know what you'd like us to talk about, and we'll get onto it ASAP. Have a good Thursday, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow. They have in common? Well, they have success, fame, and dyslexia. That's right. Learning disorders affect many people with a specific problem, often undiagnosed, and the person misunderstood and potentially marginalized. You can find out more on this week's episode of Beyond Madness, which is brought to you in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, the sponsors of Brave. And you can always check out the previous episodes. They're fantastic of Beyond Madness. Some amazing, amazing interviews, some amazing insights. And if you care about mental health, you're interested in all of these subjects, you will have hit 
an absolute jackpot when you find Beyond Madness. We will see you tomorrow at 6 a.m. bright and early. Thank you to all the guests. Thank you especially to you for listening this morning. Let us know who you'd like to hear on the show. Let us know what you'd like us to talk about, and we'll get onto it ASAP. Have a good Thursday, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow. Cliffcentral.com.